Chapter One of Dr. Montessori's Own Handbook by Maria Montessori. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Introductory Remarks Recent years have seen a remarkable improvement in the conditions of child life. In all civilized countries, but especially in England, statistics show a decrease in infant mortality. Related to this decrease in mortality, a corresponding improvement is to be seen in the physical development of children. They are physically finer and more vigorous. It has been the diffusion, the popularization of science, which has brought about such notable advantages. Mothers have learned to welcome the dictates of modern hygiene and to put them into practice in bringing up their children. Many new social institutions have sprung up and have been perfected with the object of assisting children and protecting them during the period of physical growth. In this way, what is practically a new race is coming into being, a race more highly developed, finer, and more robust, a race which will be capable of offering resistance to insidious disease. What has science done to affect this? Science has suggested for us certain very simple rules by which the child has been restored as nearly as possible to conditions of a natural life, and an order and a guiding law have been given to the functions of the body. For example, it is science which suggested maternal feeding, the abolition of swaddling clothes, baths, life in the open air, exercise, simple short clothing, quiet and plenty of sleep. Rules were also laid down for the measurement of food, adapting it rationally to the physiological needs of the child's life. Yet, with all this, science made no contribution that was entirely new. Mothers had always nursed their children, children had always been clothed, they had breathed and eaten before. The point is that the same physical acts which, performed blindly and without order, led to disease and death when ordered rationally, were the means of giving strength and life. The great progress made may perhaps deceive us into thinking that everything possible has been done for children. We have only to weigh the matter carefully, however, to reflect. Are our children only those healthy little bodies which today are growing and developing so vigorously under our eyes? Is their destiny fulfilled in the production of beautiful human bodies? In that case there would be little difference between their lot and that of the animals which we raise that we may have good meat or beasts of burden. Man's destiny is evidently other than this, and the care due to the child covers a field wider than that which is considered by physical hygiene. The mother who has given her child his bath and sent him in his perambulator to the park has not fulfilled the mission of the mother of humanity. The hen which gathers her chickens together, and the cat which licks her kittens and lavishes on them such tender care, differ in no wise from the human mother in the services they render. No, the human mother, if reduced to such limits, devotes herself in vain, feels that a higher aspiration has been stifled within her. She is yet the mother of man. Children must grow not only in the body, but in the spirit and the mother longs to follow the mysterious spiritual journey of the beloved one who tomorrow will be the intelligent divine creation man 
science evidently has not finished its progress. On the contrary, it has scarcely taken the first step in advance, for it has hitherto stopped at the welfare of the body. It must continue, however, to advance on the same positive lines along which it has improved the health and saved the physical life of the children. It is bound in the future to benefit and to reinforce their inner life, which is the real human life. On the same positive lines, science will proceed to direct the development of the intelligence, of character, and of those latent creative forces which lie hidden in the marvelous embryo of man's spirit. As a child's body must draw nourishment and oxygen from its external environment in order to accomplish a great physiological work, the work of growth, so also the spirit must take from its environment the nourishment which it needs to develop according to its own laws of growth. It cannot be denied that the phenomena of development are a great work in themselves. The consolidation of the bones, the growth of the whole body, the completion of the minute construction of the brain, the formation of the teeth, all these are very real labors of the physiological organism, as is also the transformation which the organism undergoes during the period of puberty. These exertions are very different from those put forth by mankind in so-called external work, that is to say, in social production, whether in the schools where man is taught or in the world where, by the activity of his intelligence, he produces wealth and transforms his environment. It is none the less true, however, that they are both work. In fact, the organism, during these periods of greatest physiological work, is least capable of performing external tasks, and sometimes the work of growth is of such extent and difficulty that the individual is overburdened as with an excessive strain, and for this reason alone becomes exhausted or even dies. Man will always be able to avoid external work by making use of the labor of others. But there is no possibility of shirking that inner work. Together with birth and death it has been imposed by nature itself, and each man must accomplish it for himself. This difficult, inevitable labor, this is the work of the child. When we say that little children should rest, we are referring to one side only of the question of work. We mean that they should rest from that external, visible work to which the little child, through his weakness and incapacity, cannot make any contribution useful either to himself or to others. Our assertion, therefore, is not absolute. The child, in reality, is not resting. He is performing the mysterious inner work of his auto-formation. He is working to make a man, and to accomplish this it is not enough that the child's body should grow in actual size. The most intimate functions of the motor and nervous systems must also be established and the intelligence developed. The functions to be established by the child fall into two groups. One, the motor functions by which he is to secure his balance and learn to walk and to coordinate his movements. Two, the sensory functions through which, receiving sensations from his environment, he lays the foundations of his intelligence by a continual exercise of observation, comparison, and judgment. 
In this way he gradually comes to be acquainted with his environment and to develop his intelligence. At the same time he is learning a language, and he is faced not only with the motor difficulties of articulation, sounds, and words, but also with the difficulty of gaining an intelligent understanding of names and of the syntactical composition of the language. If we think of an immigrant who goes to a new country ignorant of its products, ignorant of its natural appearance and social order, entirely ignorant of its language, we realize that there is an immense work of adaptation which he must perform before he can associate himself with the active life of the unknown people. No one will be able to do for him that work of adaptation. He himself must observe, understand, remember, form judgments, and learn the new language by laborious exercise and long experience. What then is to be said of the child? What of this immigrant who comes into a new world, who, weak as he is, and before his organism is completely developed, must in a short time adapt himself to a world so complex? Up to the present day, the little child has not received rational aid in the accomplishment of this laborious task. As regards the psychical development of the child, we find ourselves in a period parallel to that in which the physical life was left to the mercy of chance and instinct, the period in which infant mortality was a scourge. It is by scientific and rational means also that we must facilitate that inner work of psychical adaptation to be accomplished within the child, a work which is by no means the same thing as quote, any external work or production whatsoever. Close quote. This is the aim which underlies my method of infant education, and it is for this reason that certain principles which it enunciates together with that part which deals with the technique of their practical application, are not of general character, but have special reference to the particular case of the child from three to seven years of age, i.e., to the needs of a formative period of life. My method is scientific, both in its substance and in its aim. It makes for the attainment of a more advanced stage of progress, in directions no longer only material and physiological. It is an endeavor to complete the course which hygiene has already taken, but in the treatment of the physical side alone. If today we possess statistics respecting the nervous debility, defects of speech, errors of perception and of reasoning, and lack of character in normal children, it would perhaps be interesting to compare them with statistics of the same nature, but compiled from the study of children who have had a number of years of rational education. In all probability we should find a striking resemblance between such statistics and those today available showing the decrease in mortality and the improvement in the physical development of children. End of Section 1